All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's begin. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha and Mishnah, special, uh, special dual edition that we're starting today, May 11th, 2021. So we're going to be studying the section of Torah related to today, which is going to be the third reading of the Torah portion of Bamidbar. And then we're going to study some Mishnah, Mishnayot, in honor of my grandfather, Le'ilu uh, Nishmas, for the memory of the soul of Tzvi Hirsh ben Chaim Yishayo Akohen, and the Mishnah is the same letters as Neshama, so that's what we are going to be doing after we study the daily section of the Torah. All right, I'm going to share my screen, and give me a moment here, please. Let me make sure I have the right the right window open. Okay, let's do it. Can you guys see the Torah reading? It's coming up? Okay, good. It's really hard for me sometimes to tell what is being shown and what's not, but I'm glad that it's good. Okay, so again, Torah reading for Bamidbar, that's this week's Torah portion, reading number three, because today is Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday is the third day, third reading. We begin with chapter two of the book of Numbers. God spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the children of Israel shall encamp each man by his division, with the flagstaffs of their father's house. Some distance from the tent of meeting, they shall encamp. Okay, so this is a very interesting law um, that pertained to the way they camped. It's that each, which we touched on yesterday, but here we have it clear, that when, when you set up camp, each person should be encamped by their flagstaffs, or with their flagstaffs of their father's house. In other words, by the tribal affiliation. Every tribe had a flag. Um, and you'll sometimes see, you know, representations of that depicted in synagogues or whatever, stained glass windows. You know, every tribe with a symbol, with, uh, with some sort of tribal symbology on a flag. And, uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, a reference to, to what we have here. And the Torah says it should be, they should encamp some distance from the tent of meeting. So not right around the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, but a little, bit, a little bit out. Again, there was a bit of a perimeter. First, immediately outside the tabernacle were the Levites and the priests. And then outside of that was where the, where the, the rest of the people, or the majority of the people, lived. Okay, here we go. Now the Torah is going to tell us who camps where and to what direction. So those camping in front to the east. Now it's interesting that that east is called front, you know, but that's that's the way it's referred to here. So to the east, again, a map picture in your mind, a mishkan that is a rectangle. Let's just picture for for simplicity's sake, picture a horizontal rectangle, right? Just a, a rectangle, and to the east which is going to be to the right of your mental image, right? To the east, the front, the right, is uh, our three tribes. Okay, and what are these tribes? So here we go. So to the east were the legions under the division of the camp of Judah. Now, it's interesting because when we counted the people, we started from Reuben, which is the firstborn. But when we talk about the encamping, we start with Judah, who was the, the leader, the, the, the kingly tribe of, uh, of the Jewish people. So Judah is to the east. The prince of the children of Judah was Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. We spoke about him yesterday as well in the context of the census. One tribal leader helped with the census, and Nachshon was Judah's leader. His legion numbered 74,600. Camping next to him, again, on the eastern side. There's going to be three tribes per direction. So camping next to him is the tribe of Issachar. The prince of the children of Issachar was Nathanael, the son of Zuar. Or Tzuar. His legion number 54,400. These are the same numbers that we discussed yesterday in the census. It's just repeating it in the context of the encamping. Then, on that direction as well, to the east, was the tribe of Zebulun. And the prince of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. His legion number 57,400. So the total sum for the legions of Judah's camp, it's called Judah's camp, it means the three tribes that encamped on the eastern side, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, Yehuda, Issachar, and Zebulun, 
So it's called Judah's camp. That was the primary of those three. So it's called by Yehuda, by Judah's name. So the sum of that direction, the eastern flank of the Jewish people, was 186,400. These shall journey first. So whenever the, the encampment moves, those three tribes to, on the eastern side should go first in formation of marching or traveling. I don't know if they're marching, but they're traveling. Next, let's continue with the south. We're going to go east and now south. So again, picture the Mishkan, horizontal configuration, like a rectangle. And now under the Mishkan to the south is called the division of the camp of Reuben. Again, there are going to be three tribes, but it's named after Reuben. So these were to the south. The prince of the children of Reuben wa was Elitzor, the son of Shadeir. His legion numbered 46,500. So those are the numbers of Reubenites to the south. Camping next to him, also in the south, was the tribe of Simeon, Shimon. The prince of the, of the children of Simeon was Shulumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai. His legion numbered 59,300. And then the tribe of God. The prince of the children of God was Elis Eliasaf, the son of Ruel. His legion numbered 45,650. Those are the three tribes on the south, Reuben, Simeon, and God. The total sum for the legions of Reuben's camp, that's the southern flank, was 151,450. They shall be the second to set out. So in formation, the eastern flank goes first, then your southern flank. Make sense so far? Yeah, it's all about the formation and about order and structure. Then the tent of meeting shall set out. So in other words, when the Jewish people travel first, the eastern flank, then the southern flank, then the actual mishkan, the actual tent of meeting, the actual tabernacle travels with the Levite camp in the center of the other camps. Just as they camp, so shall they travel, each man in his place, by their divisions. So again, the eastern side, uh, Jewish people, the southern side, then you have the Mishkan itself, flanked by all the Levites that were dwelling around it. They transported it, that's where they lived. They lived around it, so then they would travel in the procession, if you will, or in the, I don't know what you would call it, in this, uh, I guess, procession. Um, verse 18, the legions under the division of the camp of Ephraim. Oh, so now we're back to the encampment. Now we're to the west. So we did east, south, and now we're going west, the left side of our imaginary rectangle. So on the, left, on, the, on, the, on the western side was Ephraim. They were to the west. The prince of the children of Ephraim was Elishama, the son of Amihud. His legion numbered 45,500. Next to him was the tribe of Manasseh. The prince of the children of Manasseh was Gamliel, the son of Pedatzer. His legion numbered 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the prince of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidam, the son of Gedoni. His legion numbered 35,400. So if we add the three tribes together, we have Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. So those three tribes, um, the total... 24, the total sum for the legions under the division of the camp of Ephraim was 108,100. They shall be the third to set out. So it goes east, south, Mishkan Levites, west. Let's talk about the north. That's all we're left. That's the last uh, direction. The legions under the division of the camp of Dun were to the north. The prince of the children of Dun was Achiezer, the son of Amishadai. His legion numbered 62,700. Camping next to him was the tribe of Asher. The prince of the children of Asher was Pegel, the son of Achran. His legion numbered 41,500. Finally, then the tribe of Naphtali. The prince of the children of Naphtali was Achira, the son of Enon. His legion numbered 53,400. What's the total? Verse 31, the total sum for the legions of the division of the camp of Don was 157,600. They shall be the last to set out. So, if they were encamped, if you were looking at, like I told you about the book yesterday, right? It's really cool. But if you were looking, let's say, at a bird's eye view of the Jewish encampment, you would see a tabernacle in the center, a rectangular structure and open space in the center. Some encampments around, well, not some, decent number of encampments around this tabernacle, 
housed, uh, lived in by the Levites, and then four groups of three tribes, east, south, west, and north. And it went in that order of when they traveled. So when they picked up, when they, when they started moving, it was first the three tribes in the east, then the south, then the west, then finally the north. So let's continue. Verse 32. Oh, and, and I'm sorry, one, one thing that I mentioned yesterday, they shall be the last to set out. That is referring to, that is referring to the, um, the, 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 tribe of Don and those with Don. But I mentioned yesterday that it was specifically Don that took on the job of the lost and found for the Jewish people. They would gather the stuff that was left behind at any encampment. They would make sure that it gets back to the people by the next encampment. All right, here we go. Verse 32. These are the numbers of the Israelites according to their father's houses. The total number of legions of the camps. In other words, if you counted up all of the four directions and all the people that were there, all, well, at least military age, was 603,550. However, once again, the Levites were not counted with the rest of the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. The Israelites did all that the Lord had commanded Moses. They encamped by their divisions, and so did they journey, each man with his family, according to his father's house. So when they encamped, they encamped by their tribes in their areas, and when they journeyed, when they traveled, they likewise did that. They traveled with their group, with their, with their, uh, with their tribal affiliation in their, in their specific divisions. All right, so that's a discussion of, of, um, of, how, of how they lived and how they kind of set up camp. I want to see if I can find, there is an interesting Rashi. Let's see if we can find it here. I don't think it's here, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Okay, it's a little bit easy. It would be a little bit easier if we had like a picture with the, the names of the tribes and all that stuff. But here's what I, want to, what I want to tell you. And that is that you have this beautiful teaching in Judaism that essentially talks about the power of influence and how, you know, who, who we hang out with has a tremendous impact on who we are. And vice versa. The people that hang out with us are influenced by us. But the idea of, of influence is a very powerful theme in, in Yiddishkeit and Judaism. And there's a, there's, a, there's a really powerful teaching. I think that it comes from the Talmud or the Medrash, and Rashi cites it a little bit elsewhere, maybe even in this week's Torah portion, maybe in tomorrow's reading, where it talks about those that um, encamped in the south. Right? Reuben in the south. Um... And it says that in the south, the Levite families in the south included Korach. Do you guys remember who Korach was? Korach was the guy who tried to revolt, try to stir up trouble against Moses and Aaron. And who did he have with him? He had a bunch of people from the tribe of Reuben. And our sages tell us that how did he get them specifically? Because they were neighbors. Now remember, Korach was a Levite. But in the Levite configuration, he was to the south of the tabernacle of the Mishkan. And who else was further south? Which of the Jewish people was further south? Reuben. Our sages tell us, Oi l'rasha, oi l'shchenai. Woe, like W-O-E. Unfortunate it is for the wicked, and unfortunate it is to be the neighbor of the wicked. So Korach, who was all about, you know, power plays and whatnot, Korach, all about causing, causing trouble. So he was, he, he lived to the south. And that's where also Reuben, the tribe of Reuben was, and that hence the influence. So this is a reminder, the power of influence and the power of being careful about the influences that we, that we um, set ourselves up for or set, set ourselves up with. We have to be very careful to make sure that the influences, you know, the environment that we put ourselves in is a, is a holy environment, is a, an appropriate environment, and not in any way putting ourselves in danger or at risk. Um, we say in our prayers, we ask that Hashem not put us, um, not give us a test. You know, every morning in our prayers, we say, God, please don't test me today. You know, it's, not that God always listens to us, but that's at least our request. 
because we ask that we have open and clear blessings and, 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 and no hardship and no challenge. Let alone, we shouldn't put ourselves in, 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 the, in the crosshairs directly. In other words, we ask that God not put us at risk and test us. We shouldn't put ourselves at risk and test ourselves. And what I'm saying about, with this is that we should try to avoid negative influences and negative temptations. If we know that something is negative, let's not be that neighbor, the neighbor of that. I don't mean specifically people even. I'm just saying a thing, a context, uh, whatever it is. I want to keep it open-ended so everyone can apply it on their own. If you know that this is your vice, well, then stay, stay away from it because it's not. Don't be the neighbor, so to speak. Don't fraternize with the enemy, right, with, uh, with that negative vice. On the, other, on the other hand, there is a place to be a positive influence. Because as it says, just as it says that it's no good to be the, the neighbor of the wicked, it also says it's good to be the, the, the neighbor of the righteous. So if we can be the righteous neighbor that influences our neighbors, that's the ideal. So two lessons. Number one, we don't, try to, we don't put ourselves in harm's way. Number two, be that positive influence about which we say, it's good to be righteous and it's good to be the neighbor of the righteous let that be said about your neighbors because they're in proximity with you so be, we, should be, we should be the influencer and not the influencee we should be the ones that are spreading the light and not taking in the stuff that we don't need to be taking in from the outside alright so that's it for today we did it pretty quick it's pretty straightforward as well but now I, what I want to do is jump into the Mishnah so what I'm going to do is, let's find, the browser, here we go. And now we're going to turn to a different tab. I hope you can, I hope you, you all can see that. What did I just do? Okay. Mishnah Brachot. So we're now learning Mishnayis, Mishnayot, in honor of my grandfather and his neshama, his soul, Tzvi Hersh ben Chaim Yishayahu HaKohen. And we're going to start with the very first Mishnah of the very first tractate of Mishnayot, Mishnah Brachot. Brachot deals with prayers and blessings, um, a very core part of, of Jewish life and practice. So, here we go. Let's, um, let's read. There's, a lot of com- there's some commentary here, but that can help us also along as we go through it. So I'm just going to read, and you can follow along. The beginning of Tractate Brachot, the first tractate in the first of the six orders of the Mishnah, opens with the discussion of the recitation of Shema, as the recitation of Shema encompasses an acceptance of the yoke of heaven and of the mitzvot, and as such, forms the basis for all subsequent teachings. In other words, we start with the Shema because the Shema is a declaration of, of God's sovereignty, of monotheism, of our belief in God, and thus it's the source of essentially all of Judaism. So the very first Mishnah, or the very first um, teachings of, of the Mishnah are about the, recit- the recitation of the Shema prayer. So the Mishnah opens with the laws regarding the appropriate time to recite Shema. So as you'll see here, the opening is not what, what should you meditate on when you say the Shema, what should you be thinking about, and how should you say it? No. The first question is when. What's the setting? When do you actually say Shema? Now, I want to give you a little bit of background information. The Torah tells us in Deuteronomy to recite the Shema in the morning and in the evening. So the question is, so in the evening, let's start, because the night comes first in, Jew, in Jewish law, in, Jewish, in the Jewish day, it's first evening and then morning. So when at night do we recite the Shema? At what time? What's considered night? What's considered perhaps too late? You know, is it sunset? Is it not sunset? Is it till midnight? Is it after midnight? What, what, when's the window for the, for the nighttime Shema? So let's begin. From when, that is from what time, does one recite Shema in the evening? And the Mishnah answers, from the time when the priests enter to partake of their truma. Now, when is that? So, if we look at... 
some commentary. Here we go. We see on the side here. Um, from the time that the priests enter their house in order to eat the truma, so it says the priests would immerse at dusk so that after the sun had set and the stars came out, they could go into their homes and eat truma. Truma is basically the donation that, of foods that was given to the, to the Kohanim, to the priests. Um, good. So that is, this is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. So Rabbi Eliezer determines that until the sun is set, the Shema cannot be recited. So that's basically what, what this means. From the time when the priests enter to partake of their chuma means from the time they get home, which means after, after um, the sun has set, after sunset, and the stars have come out. Now that's the first part of the mission. That's the first opening statement of the mission. Now, now the question is, from okay, until when does the time for the recitation of the evening Shema extend? So you can start it, it's valid, you do the mitzvah from when sun sets and the and stars come out. And how long do you have? If you don't do it that moment, till when can you do it? Or when is it too late to do it? So the Mishnah answers, until the end of the first watch. What does that mean? So again, back in the commentary on the right, I hope you can see the commentary on the right. It says the night is divided into three watches, three shifts, we might call it today. Rebbe holds that once the first watch is passed, which would be about 10 p.m., if the day and night are both 12 hours, then one can no longer recite the Shema. It seems that he interprets when you lie down to mean that the Shema was recited at a time when most people go to sleep, that is between the, the time the stars come out and the end of the first watch. So again, if you divide the 12 hours of the night into three shifts, that means four hours each. So we're just using round numbers here. Let's say sun sets at 6 p.m. You have from 6 to 10 p.m. to recite Shema. Does that make sense? You have those? Is that different for men than for women? No, this would be the same mitzvah all around. Really? Yeah. Well, well, but one second. This is only the first opinion. This is not the halacha yet. This is only one opinion. As, as we'll see, this is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. But we have other... Don't worry, we have, we have more opinions here. So, um, oh, let's go back inside the Mishnah. It says, the term used in the Torah to indicate the time for the recitation of the evening Shema is b'shach when you lie down, which refers to the time when individuals go to sleep, typically. Therefore, the time for the recitation of Shema is the first portion of the night when individuals typically prepare for sleep. That's, this is the statement of Rabbi Eliezer. So Rabbi Eliezer believes that when the Torah says to recite Shema at night, when you, when you lie down, it means the time that people typically, from nightfall until people, you know, get ready for bed or go to bed, that first part of the night, not like while people are normally sleeping, the first part of the night, the first third of the night is the valid time for the Shema. However, the rabbis say, we're back inside, I hope you could see that, the mouse. The rabbis say, that means the majority of the rabbis, the time for the recitation of the evening Shema is until midnight. Not till 12, not till 10, in this example, but until 12, half the night. So instead of four hours into the night, a full six hours of the night, half the night, you can recite the Shema. Does that make sense? So if sunset was at six, you have another six hours, six to six, six to till uh, till midnight. That's what Rabbi. That's what the rabbis say. Rabbi, Gam, Rabbi Gamliel says the third opinion says, no, even longer. One may recite Shema until dawn. Until the next morning, you can say the Shema the whole night, two a.m., three a.m., four a.m., etc. Why? Indicating that the B'shapachas, we understood as a reference to the entire time people sleep in their beds the whole night. So he understands when the Torah says, recite Shema when you go to sleep. It doesn't mean when you're going to sleep, but the whole time that people are sleeping. And the Mishnah relates that Rabbi Gamliel practiced in accordance with, with his own ruling. Here we go. There was an incident where Rabbi Gamliel's sons returned very late from a wedding hall. So imagine the story. His sons were at a wedding and they came back late. And they said to him, as they had been preoccupied with celebrating with the groom bride, Ay, we did not recite Shema. He said to them, don't worry. If the dawn has not yet arrived, you are obligated to recite Shema. Right? So that was his opinion. And he told his family that as well. Since Rabbi Gamliel's opinion disagreed with that of the rabbis, he explained to his sons that the rabbis actually agree with him. And that is not only with regard to the lacha, the recitation of Shema, but rather wherever the sages say until midnight, the mitzvah may be performed until dawn. Rabbi Gamliel basically says that not only do I say you can do it until the morning, but even the rabbis, 
that said midnight, they also meant till morning, but they wanted to give you an earlier time so that you don't push it off till too late and then you fall asleep and then you don't remember and then you miss it. Does that make sense? Rabbi Gamliel says every time, see, look at this line, wherever the sages say until midnight, it actually can be performed until dawn. In other words, what they're saying is ideally do it by midnight or make sure you do it by midnight or else you're gonna fall asleep and, and you're, and you're, and you're gonna to totally, totally miss it out. But if you didn't, do it by midnight and, and you do it later, it's still kosher. Rabbi Gamliel now cites several cases in support of his claim that even if it's stated that you have to do it by midnight, you could really do it the whole night, such as the burning of fats and limbs on the altar. So here's the explanation. Due to the quantity of offerings each day, the priests were often unable to complete the burning of all the fats and limbs. We, I mean, you and I know about this, right? With all the offerings, you had to burn certain parts of the animal on the altar. Well, the altar was a finite space. So if you had a lot of sacrifices, I mean, how do you, when, when do you do it? So you could do it all night. So as it is written, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall remain upon the pyre on the altar all night until morning while the fire on the altar burns it. And with regard to all sacrifices, such as the sin offering and the guilt offering that are eaten for one day and one night, although the sages state that they may only be eaten until midnight, by Torah law, they may be eaten until dawn. This is in accordance with the verse on the day in which it is offered, must you eat, do not leave it until the morning. Now, you and I recently have learned these laws in Leviticus, last, last, I don't know, month or two. And the bottom line here is that even when the law seems to say that you, you, know, you have to eat it that day or until midnight, you, can, you really have until the next morning. Um, so if so, in other words, when it says do not leave it until the morning, that means don't let the morning come without having burnt it or eaten it or whatever it is. So if so, why did the sages say that they may be eaten only until midnight? So then why do they say midnight? This is in order to distance a person from transgression. As if, one, as if one believes that he has until dawn to perform a mitzvah, he might be negligent and postponed until the opportunity to perform the mitzvah has passed. Basically, the sages gave you an earlier time so that you would definitely get it done as opposed to giving you a later time and then maybe, you know, miss it. So that's the idea. But we need to know the trick because a person does need to know that even after midnight passes, you can say the shmastel. So that's why it's important that we have the Mishnah and Rabbi Gamaliel's teaching that reminds us that you can do it even after 12. Mark. Yeah, I have, I've got a Talmud, I can, but I've got a good note on this. Nice. It, it, the rabbis were concerned that if people were allowed to eat the meat of sacrifice up until dawn, some might forget and eat it after dawn and thus commit a sin punishable by Karis. I guess that's flogging. Uh, that's actually spiritual excision of the soul. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it's a safe, essentially it's a safeguard. That's what it is. It's safeguarding um, us from, you know, being, uh, you know, from, from missing it. Okay, let's do Mishnah number two. All right, from when does one recite Shema in the morning? Okay, so that's the evening. So now we have our window in the evening. So from nightfall, from sunset, when stars come out, until either four hours or six hours or all 12 hours of the night, depending on who you ask and how you read into it. All right, well, let's do number two. Let's talk about the second topic, which is, okay, when does the morning Shema kick in? So what, from, in other words, the mitzvah is to recite Shema in the morning. What, when does morning begin? What's the rule of thumb for morning? How do you define morning? So the Mishnah answers from when a person can distinguish between sky blue, tchelet, and white. In other words, there has to be enough light in the world to be able to distinguish between sky blue and white. If you had, I don't know, let's say gemstones that were sky blue, light blue, and some that were white, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right? Especially if it's, you know, early morning and everything looks kind of blue. So then your white looks blue and your blue doesn't, you know, who knows what's what. So it has to be bright enough in the sky or in the world where, or where you are <coughs> to distinguish between those two colors, then Shema kicks in. In other words, that's a sign that it's morning. Rabbi Eliezer says, 
Different opinion. From when one can distinguish between sky blue and leek green. <laughs> it's a bit of a different uh, color schematic. So he says, no, it has to be between those two colors. That's, um, that's, that's how that works. Okay, and then, let's see one second. So uh, there's an interesting commentary here. The first opinion holds that one must be able to, to distinguish between blue and white the two colors in one's tzitzit. Remember, the original tzitzit had blue, one strand of blue. So you have to be able to differentiate between those two colors. But Rabbi Ezra holds that one must be able to distinguish between blue and green. Green is close to the color of tzitzit. So Rabbi Ezra is saying that one must be able to tell that the tzitzit are blue and not green. This will require more light than distinguishing between blue and white. So he says you have to wait a little bit longer till the sky is a little bit brighter to not only distinguish between blue and white, but between blue and green, which is a little bit more subtle. So you need a little bit more light. You gotta wait a little bit longer, a few more minutes until the sun creeps up a little bit more, giving you a little bit more perception, visibility, to distinguish between more subtle colors. Let's continue. So that's when you start the Shema. That, sorry, that's when the mitzvah of Shema recitation kicks in. And, and when is, when's the cutoff for the morning? In other words, you're supposed to recite Shema in the morning. All right, 11 o'clock? 11.30? 11.45? Are we, are we still going with Shema? Let's, let's look what the mission says. And one must finish reciting Shema. In other words, the cutoff for the morning is until the end of the period when you rise, i.e. sunrise, when the sun begins to shine. That's one opinion. Rabbi Yeshua says, that's, that's pretty early. So it starts from when, when daybreak happens, pretty much, until the period of sunrise. Rabbi Yeshua says, he gives us a little bit more time. One may recite the morning Shema until three hours of the day, which is still considered when you rise, like when you rise, um, which is the verse from the Torah, as that is the habit of kings to rise from their sleep at three hours of the day. In other words, the people in the field need to wake up by daybreak. You've got to maximize your sunlight hours. But if you're a king here in the palace, yeah, you can sleep in. Yeah, you can wake up 9 o'clock a.m. No big deal, right? What's the problem? You're a king, right? So, so Rabbi Yeshua says it's still considered the, the rising time for kings. So it's still considered to be the time, quote, when people wake up. Therefore, you can still recite the Shema up until three hours of the day. Now, while there is a set time frame for the recitation of Shema, one who recites Shema from that time onward loses nothing. Okay, so, so now the Mishnah gets into something else. And that is that, um, let's say you missed the time. Let's say, whoops, you totally forgot, and now it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're like, oh, man, holy moly, I forgot to say Shema this morning. I missed the mitzvah. Are you allowed to recite Shema now at 1 p.m.? The answer is yes. You don't lose anything. It's no, it's, you didn't, there's no sin to say it, right? Because although he does not fulfill the mitzvah of reciting the Shema at the, at the appointed time, he is nevertheless considered like one who reads the Torah and is rewarded accordingly. Now, the Shema comes from the Torah. So even if you miss the time of saying the Shema and that mitzvah, you can still say it and should still say it because you're studying Torah and that's always a good thing whenever that happens. Does that make sense? I want to give you some specifics because it's, sunrise is not exactly six and three hours into the day is not exactly nine. It's every day is different, as you know. Sunrise and sunset moves every single day, you know, incrementally. I have a, an app on my phone called Zmanim. This is what it looks like. Can you guys see that? Oh, it's probably really small. It's a Zmanim app. It, it takes your longitude and latitude. It's got GPS uh, connection. And it tells you Atlanta, Georgia, for today, Alota Shachar, which is daybreak, was at 5.16 a.m. The earliest time to put on talis and tefillin was at 5.50 a.m. Um, and the, the, the last time that you could say Shema today and do the mitzvah, I mean, you could say Shema as we just said anytime, it's, it's studying Torah, but for, to do the mitzvah, your, your, your cutoff point today was 9.24 a.m. So you got to get it in by 9.24 a.m. today. So... According to my app, I don't know if you could see that. Sof Zman Shema, 9.24. Okay. Hope that makes sense. Um, by the way, I will say, just because it's a mitzvah every day, it shouldn't be um, discounted. 
like shofar, everyone makes a point to be in shul on Rosh Hashanah to hear shofar. That's no, that's no more of a mitzvah than saying Shema in the morning every single day and at night every single day. It's the same, the same Torah that says blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah also says say Shema twice a day. So we should be, we should try to be diligent in saying Shema at the right time every single day, twice a day. At night, okay. yeah. Ah, I see what you're saying. That women are not bound by time-bound mitzvahs. Yeah, but it's not all time-bound mitzvahs. It's, um, yeah, you're asking a good question. Um, my understanding is that they're not obligated with communal prayer, but individual prayer would still be, a, would still be an obligation. Uh, we have to look it up to see exactly what the deal is with the Shema. But in general, personal prayer is across the board. You're right. There is there are some things that are time constrained that are not uh, not not binding on women, but it's not all things. Number one, it's not everything, and number two, um, this might be a little bit different just because of the the nature of the per, the personal nature of the of the mitzvah, but requires further study and analysis. Okay. Yes, Donna. So, so if we did it twice a day, so that would be over seven hundred you know, this mitzvah on a yearly basis, and the shofar would be a handful, maybe. So, I mean, is every mitzvah the same merit? So, and you know, we have 700, over 700, you know, times for the Shema. It's a, it's a good question. I, you know, it says in Pirkei Avod, another Mishnah, it says that we don't have the ability, just because of lack of awareness, to be able to rank a mitzvah. Like this one is greater, this one is less than, this one is more important, this one is less important. If it's a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah. You know, it's, uh, it's holy and it's, it's divinely ordained and it's, it's super special. So I think it's special that we have something to, that we can do twice a day to keep us plugged in. Shofar is unique, you know, it's once a year, two days of Russia, whatever, twice a year um, in the diaspora. But it's, uh, oh, sorry, no, it's twice a, it's Rosh Hashanah, two days everywhere. Um, but anyway, the point is that it's, um, it's no less of a mitzvah because of the frequency. Is it more of a mitzvah? I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to rank. Um, okay, let's move on to three. It, well, yeah, the most significant prayer that comes from biblical sources. The Amidah is also a very significant prayer. It's where we actually ask for what we need, which is also a biblical mitzvah. But the part of the prayer which like, quotes scripture in the most powerful way as a declaration of what we believe in, foundation of Judaism, would be, would be the Shema. I mean, that would be right up there as far as like central prayers. Like if we could only say one prayer a day, I would go with Shema, you know? Synagogue, you know, as a child. Yeah, it's the first, I will tell you, it's the first, it's the first um, prayer that's recited in the morning. It's the last one at night. It's the first prayer that's recited that, that a child learns. And it's also the last prayer that a person says before they pass away. It's very powerful. Okay, let's do number three. Um, okay, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, the two famous... Mark. Yeah, I had a question. Sure. Um, yeah, early on in this Mishnah, it says, I have a note here. <clears throat> this has to do with, with, what, with what defines of when you can say Shammai, what morning is. And it says, there is a dispute among the Hoskim, what's that? Uh, as, as to whether this refers to the very... This they're talking about when dawn is, as to whether this refers to the very first rays of dawn that appear on the eastern horizon, which is the Magan Avraham, or to the spread of light across the entire eastern horizon, which occurs a bit later. Uh, Eliyah Rabbah, there. See further in Mishnah, uh, and Biora Halakha. In practical terms, Alos HaShachar is considered to occur 72 minutes before sunrise. Right. Rambam's commentary on to this Mishnah. Others maintain that it's 90 minutes before sunrise. So how can you say the minute, how can you say Shema uh, up to 9 o'clock? Because you have a few hours into the day. You have about three hours after sunrise to say it. Is that for the night or is that for the day? For the day. It begins okay. 
with this, with the first emergence of light, depending on which opinion you take. But it ends, the window of time is three hours into the day. Now, it's not exactly three 60-minute hours. It's complicated. It's uh, depending on the, the number of daylight hours, you divide that into 12, and then you have an hour. So, whatever. The math can get a little wonky. Not wonky. It can get a little bit complicated. But know this, that, um, yeah, sunrise today was about 6.40, and... About 9.24 is the end of the, according to Magen Avram, is the end of, the, end of uh, the, the time to say Shema. So you have that window, that window right there. Okay. What about Ray? What about Modani? Modani is when you get up, whenever you get up. And that's before Shema? Yes. Okay. Yes. Modani is when you're still in bed, right when you wake up. Yeah. Okay, let's jump into this, which is an interesting uh, discussion and story. So Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, these two great academies, disputed the proper way to recite Shema. So how do you say it? Beit Shammai say, that academy would say, one should recite Shema in the manner indicated in the text of Shema itself. Therefore, in the evening, every person must, rec- must recline on his side and recite Shema. In fulfillment of the verse, when you lie down. In other words, the verse says you should recite it when you lie down. So recite it like you're lying down. Do it on, you know, do it on your bed, lying down. And in the morning, he must stand and recite the Shema in fulfillment of the verse when you rise. As it is stated in Deuteronomy, when you lie down and when you rise. That was Beit Shammai. They took it literally when you lie down and when you rise, that your posture should be like that. And Beit Hillel say, every person recites Shema as he is. And he may do so in whatever position is most comfortable for him, both day and night. As it is stated, and when you walk along the way, when one is neither standing nor reclining, in other words, you could recite it as you are. Sitting, standing, it doesn't make a difference. If so, according to Beit Hillel, the second opinion, why was it stated when you lie down and when you rise? So he says this is merely to to denote time. At the time when people lie down, at the time when people rise, that's when you say, the, uh, the Shema, in the evening and in the morning. So again, there's a bit of a dispute between these two great academies as to the physical posture in which you say the Shema. So Beit Shammai says you do it while reclining or standing. Behold says, come on. It's only telling you the time when it's done, not, not how to physically do it. Okay, so that's the dispute. Now with regard to Halacha, with regard to the law, uh, or to this halacha, to this law, Rabbi Tarifin said, now we're introducing a new guy, Rabbi Tarifin. He tells a personal story. Once I was coming on the road when I stopped and reclined to recite Shema in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai. So he said, I was once, I was once traveling and I stopped and I basically lie down on, on, the, on the road, on the side of the road to say Shema at night in a reclining fashion. Although Rabbi Tarifin was a disciple of Beit Hillel, he thought that fulfilling the mitzvah in accordance with the opinion of Beit Shammai would be a more meticulous fulfillment of the mitzvah, acceptable to all opinions. So he thought, look, Beit Hill is probably saying you don't have to, but it's probably better to go all in, you know, as the Torah says. So he actually lied down, laid down to, to, to say the Shema while he was on the road, while traveling. Yet, he says, Rabbi Tarfin says, personal story, yet in doing so, I endangered myself due to the highwaymen, listen, the robbers, who would cost travelers. In other words, I basically either got or almost got mugged because I was saying Shema, lying down on the road, and made myself vulnerable. Later on, the sages said to him, you deserve to be in a position where you're liable to pay with your life. In other words, it was coming to you as you transgressed the statement of Beit Hillel. In other words, Beit Hillel said, you don't need to do it, then don't do it. This statement will be explained in the Gemara. Okay, we're not going to do the Gemara, but the Talmud explains it. But the bottom line is that Beit Hillel says you don't need to lie down, you don't need to be standing up at night in the morning when you say Shema. To do so would actually not be, would not be ideal. We always rule, I mean, typically we rule like Beit Hillel, not like Beit Shammai. Therefore, don't say it specifically while you're lying down or standing up. Just say it as you are um, and you will fulfill the mitzvah. Okay. Let's do this. Let's do number four. Um, how many missions are here? Four, five. Oh, okay, good. We got two more. We'll go through these quickly. 
Um, okay, number four. From the laws of the recitation of Shema itself, the Mishnah proceeds to discuss the blessings recited in conjunction with the Shema. So in the prayer liturgy, you don't just say the Shema. There's a buildup and a follow-up. So there's a, there's, you say some blessings beforehand and some blessings afterwards. So here the Mishnah is establishing or writing out the order that we still follow today. Here the order is established. Okay, In the morning when reciting Shema, one recites two blessings beforehand. Um, the first blessing is for the radiant lights, the sun, the moon, stars, etc. And the second is the blessing uh, on the love of Torah, the fact that God gave us Torah with love, etc. So those are the two blessings, prayers that we recite before the Shema in the morning. And there's one thereafter. After the Shema, there's one blessing, which begins with Shu and Firm, Emet V'yatsev, which is basically an affirmation of everything. It's a blessing of affirmation of everything that we said in the Shema. So those are your... So it's a sandwich. You have two blessings, the Shema, and then a, fo- uh, and then a, a follow-up blessing. And then, by the way, you go into the Amida. But the Shema itself is sandwiched in between three blessings, two before and one after. And what about the evening? And in the evening, one recites two blessings beforehand, again on the radiant lights and on the love of God, and two thereafter, not one after, but two after, in the evening service, which is the blessing of redemption, true and faithful, and the blessing help us lie down. So there's two blessings. One is about Emet Ve'emunah, uh, or Ve'emunah Kozot, which is about faithfulness to God, and the blessing, Hashkiveinu, help us lie down in peace, etc. With regard to the blessing, true and faithful, whether one recites it in its long formula, whether one recites it in its short formula, he fulfills his obligation to us. In other words, some of the prayers have a, a longer or shorter version. Today, we typically just have one version, but back in the day, they had maybe a little bit of different versions. The point is, however you say it is fine. However, the general principle is, where the sage is said to recite a long blessing, one may not shorten it. And so too, whenever they said to recite a short blessing, one may not lengthen it. Where the sage is said that a blessing must conclude with the second blessing at the end, he may not fail to conclude with that blessing. Similarly, if their sages said that a blessing must not conclude with the second blessing, one may not conclude with a blessing. Basically, sometimes there's a blessing that begin, or a prayer that begins with Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you, God, and then it concludes, and then, and then there's more stuff, and then it concludes again with Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you, Lord our God. So it's kind of like two blessings in one thought. So sometimes it does have, sometimes it doesn't have. The point is, the mission is telling us, pay attention to the liturgy, and don't deviate from the liturgy because that's where the magic sauce lies. Okay, here we go. Final mission of chapter one. And we will have concluded the first chapter, first of nine. So, um, oh, and by the way, this, this we, re- we, we mention this at the Seder in the Haggadah. Here we go. It is a mitzvah. To men- it is a mitzvah by Torah law to mention the exodus from Egypt at night. But some held that this mitzvah was like phylacteries or, or ritual fringes fulfilled only during the day and not at night. Okay. In other words, there were some opinions that said, no, you don't, um, you don't mention the Exodus. Uh, let me explain. There are three, we, the Shema is comprised of three paragraphs. The Shema and V'yahavta, then the V'hayim Shemoa, and then V'yom Rasham Amosha. So there are three, cha- three paragraphs. The first two talk about the Shema and Tefillin and Mezuzah. The last one talks about the Exodus. So the question is, that last paragraph in the Shema do you, the, about the Exodus, do we throw it in at night also or not? So some said you don't, but the halacha is that you do, and here the Mishnah details this. For this reason it was decided. The Exodus from Egypt is mentioned at night, adjacent to the recitation of the Shema. It's the third paragraph. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah said, this comes from the Haggadah, I am a proxy, well, it, it's also mentioned in the Haggadah for uh, Passover, I am approximately 70 years old. And although I have long held this opinion, I never privileged to prevail and prove that there is a biblical obligation to fulfill the accepted custom and have the Exodus from Egypt mentioned at night. In other words, I always said that you're supposed to say it at night, but I never had a source until Ben Zoma, one of the sages, interpreted homiletically and proved it obligatory. Ben Zoma derived it as it is stated in Deuteronomy that you may remember the day you went out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. The Torah says that you should remember the Exodus all, look at that line, all the days of your life. Now, why, why does it say all? So the days of your life refer to daytime hours. 
alone. However, the addition of the word all, as it is stated, all the days of your life, comes to add nights as well. So the fact that the Torah says, remember the Exodus, all the days of your life, so it could have just said, remember the Exodus, the days of your life. That means, but that would only mean daytime. The fact that it says all the days means day and night to remember the Exodus. Not to recite the Shema. The Shema we know is recited twice, twice a day because the Torah says. Now we're talking about the third paragraph of the Shema, which mentions the Exodus. Do you have to add that one on at night also? And the answer is yes. Um, and the rabbis who posit that there is no biblical obligation to mention the Exodus at night. Now they still say you should do it, but they don't, they don't believe that it's a biblical obligation. So how do they explain that extra word all for all the days of your life? They explain the word all differently and they say, the days of your life refers to the days in this world. All is added to include the days of, of the Messiah. In other words, even when Mashiach comes and will have the ultimate redemption, you'll still remember and mention the Exodus. But I want to explain what that means. One might have thought that once Mashiach is here, once the ultimate, the final redemption is here, who needs to remember a temporary redemption from Pharaoh? You know, after Pharaoh was good for a little bit, but then we had more exiles and more suffering and more pain and more anguish until Mashiach. So when Mashiach comes, will we need to remember the little light, so to speak, of the Exodus? The answer is yes. The sages say all the days of your life, I mean, days of your life would mean until, the, until Mashiach, until the Messiah. All the days of your life means even when Mashiach comes, we will, we, we will mention and remember the exodus from Egypt, which started, all, which started off all forms of redemption. So this is the final um, Mishnah of that first chapter, which essentially deals with the laws of, sorry, the, the, the chapter deals with the Shema. When do you recite the Shema at night? When do you have to finish by? When do you recite the Shema in the morning? When do you have to finish by? We talked about how do you say it? Do you say it lying down or sitting up or walking? What, what, how do you say it? Then we mentioned uh, about saying the, 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 mentioning the Exodus at night. Oh, sorry, we mentioned about the blessings, two blessings before, one blessing after in the morning, two and two at night. Then we got into, finally, we got into the idea of the Exodus and how it's a mitzvah. We, the practices to mention the Exodus at night as well. And then the big, the, the big discussion here is, is that of biblical origin or just rabbinic origin? And that remains... Well, that is the subject of difference of opinion. Okay, that is it for the first chapter. And it's been uh, really wonderful to study together. I hope you enjoyed it. All right. And Mark, I saw your email right before the class. Really beautiful. Yeah, really beautiful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email you back soon. Thank you. All right, pleasure, pleasure. All right, Ray and Donna and Mark. Great to see you guys. Take care. Tonight, don't forget, tonight is JLI Zoom, and Thursday is JLI in person. Join us for one or both, but make sure... Sorry? Are we doing in person tomorrow? No, it's supposed to rain. Okay. I saw before, 75% chance of rain, so I can't, yeah, I, we can't set up if it's raining, and it just becomes a, 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 a bit of a mess, so we'll, we'll aim to be online tomorrow. That's the plan. All right, everybody. See you guys soon. Take care. Have a wonderful day. See you a little bit later for those that we'll see. Okay, take care.